from PRX. Today on Studio 360. Just because you cave into a donut does not mean you're not a feminist. It just means you caved into a donut. The relatable anxieties that made Kathy a beloved fixture of the newspaper comics page. I'm not writing about those moments out of a grand obligation to help others. I'm writing about those moments because they're what happened to me. Plus, the pop musician who calls himself Elado Negro plays live here in the studio. Loving home, I'm just laughing. That and more is ahead today on Studio 360, right after this. Cause I feel you in my mind all the time. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt and I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. When I was a kid in the Bronx, the most important thing in the world was to be able to come to Manhattan. It was like uh, Saturday Night Fever, when they, and they all live in Brooklyn, and they talk about coming to the city. Like, where is the city? It's across the bridge. It's right across the... No, no, it's really far away. Intellectually, it's a far away emotionally, it's a far away economically, because the rents were very high in Manhattan, comparatively. That's Frederick Tutton. He's published five novels, none of them bestsellers, all of them idiosyncratic marvels with devoted fans. From his first book in 1971, The Adventures of Mao on the Long March, to Van Gogh's Bad Café, they're funny, romantic, variously moving, and zany treatments of familiar historical moments and figures. Frederick Tutton himself is kind of fantastically familiar. Like a character from fiction, from movies, from popular myth. He's this joie de vivre bohemian zealot there in the 1950s among the Beats and New York intellectuals, visiting Hemingway in Cuba during the revolution, friends with the pop artists of the 1960s and the new wave filmmakers in the 1970s, and in the 80s, a writing teacher of great novelists-to-be, like Oscar Iguelos and Frederick Mosley. Now, Fred Tutton has published his portrait of the artist as a young man. It's a memoir called My Young Life. This book runs through his early 20s when he finally does cross that intellectual and emotional and geographical Rubicon and moves to Manhattan to an apartment in the East Village. Here's an excerpt from the book about that milestone. My first apartment in New York was on the top of a six-floor tenement at 394 East 8th Street between Avenues C and D, with a bathtub in the kitchen, but with a separate toilet and shower in a small black room. There was plenty of heat and hot water and sunlight from the two windows that faced north, uptown, where the men wore jackets and ties and the women lipstick and high heels, and everyone took taxis, (laughs) the adult world to which I could not belong, and perhaps for that reason had never wished to. 
Recently, on one cold, sunny day, I met up with Tutton in that same neighborhood he moved to 60 years ago, where he still lives, which is still youthy and hip. He's 82 and fits in. The bright violet corduroy pants, the Russian fur cap, the day-glow green plexiglass cane. Oh, I didn't see it. My eyes are dimming, so I couldn't see that this was my ostentatious pants. <laughs> Had I known, I would want something more discreet. No, well, no. What are you wearing? Simple Just, jeans. We decide to zigzag the few blocks to a cafe to talk about his humble beginnings and the more glamorous Manhattan living parts his memoir doesn't get to, where he befriends people like Roy Lichtenstein, the superstar pop artist known for his comic-style paintings. Do you ever think, I mean, given that you've lived here for 55 years, and you knew, and you knew, you know, Roy Lichtenstein and Larry Rivers and all the artists at the time when you could have bought their paintings for a hundred bucks, (laughs) could have gotten this building for 16,000, do you ever think like, wow, I could be rich now. Why don't you just stab me now before (laughs) we go any further? I met Roy Lichtenstein in 64, 65. He was becoming famous. He was already popular, you know, in in the press because he considered a horrible artist. He could joke. It was a comic book artist. It was a joke. Saw the work and I loved it very much. And through other friends, we got to know each other. And I became his friend. And uh, I think we stayed, well, we stayed friends, very close friends until he died. Now, all that time, I remember going to see a show at Castelli where he did his sort of Greek Parthenon series and stuff like that. A painting would sell for $12,000. This was, it already had gone up. A lot of money. A lot of money. That was, I was in graduate school. Yeah. And, we're, and teaching at City College part-time. If I had been a child of the middle classes, I would have understood things like this. I could have gone to Caselli and said, Leo, listen, and people had done it. I didn't know that. And said, look, Leo, can I pay on an installment? And I couldn't go to Roy when he became more and more famous and say, Roy, give me a painting. I, I, you, you, you can't do that with a friend. You yeah. lose your friendship. Well, you'd grown up in New York City, but at the other end of New York City, in the Bronx, about which you talk a lot in the book, because it's your young life. It's your early young life in the Bronx. Growing up with your mother and your grandmother in this little apartment. Very small. Uh, I had my, the, my grandmother and I shared the bedroom. I mean, made a bedroom of the living room. Right. So my mother had a bedroom, and we had, a living, we had the living room, which at night became the bedroom. And there was a sc- kind of folding screen. My grandmother had behind the screen a little cot and I had a cot and that's how we lived. And your dad had taken off. By the time I was 10 he had disappeared forever. I was stuck in high school but I was sure I still had a few years left to be Rambo. To have a creative and adventurous life. To travel, to live free and with some elegance and meaning. When would that happen though? Tutton's plan to escape his hard scrabble life was to become an artist. He painted and wrote poems as a teenager in the Bronx. Horrible poems. Horrible. But ambition. So he mailed those poems to the avant-garde publisher New Directions in Manhattan, which had published writers like Juna Barnes, Henry Miller, Arthur Rambeau. I have to cite one because it's, uh, it, it lives in my tissue with a shame unbearable. It, it, the poem is... Kyphosis of the mind is no crime. No question the editors there would be impressed by the unusual use of the medical term kyphosis in the literary context I had placed it. I received a little handwritten rejection note. It meant they took me seriously. Thank you very much, Mr. Tutton. Uh, Please send us more of your work. 
You have no idea what it meant to me to write the directions and even get a letter back from Manhattan, all the way from Manhattan, to me, Mr. Tutton. It felt like I was on track to the wider artistic world, one that was sure to include love. What else, like, fed your or confirmed your romantic idea of cosmopolitan Manhattan and your future life? I mean, uh, did you go to cafes? Well, did yeah, you see yeah, the hipsters? Yeah. I had seen, now my, my focus had shifted a bit <laughs> from the Manhattan, although that was a dear, of course, but to go to Paris. I thought, ah, oh, that's where it is. It's all in Paris. Everything was falling into place and I was fast becoming a part of the world I had read about in novels like Lust for Life about Van Gogh, my hero, who suffered rejection and loneliness and poverty to give his life to art. What a great, noble thing to give your life to art. I painted the minute I got home after school. I was so glad no one was there to break into my concentration, to remind me that I was at home, living with my mother, and not where I dreamed one day of being in my studio in Paris. So part of the excitement of Manhattan was that it had qualities that I thought Paris had the cafes. Yeah. Like Cafe Well, you could get down here on the subway. Get there, take the subway all the way down here. When I dropped out of high school after I started working on a place called Sperry and Hutchinson Company, Green Stamp Company on 14th Street, then after work I'd come down to the cafes. I'd sit and I'd sit in, uh, in Figaro. And that was heaven. Café Figaro was the closest thing to what I had imagined what it was like being in Paris. I went as often as I could for the worldly European flavor. Some of the patrons were leisurely reading books and foreign newspapers at their table, and some of the waitresses were actually French. This cliché of the bohemian artist hanging out all night in cafés, exchanging deep thoughts, arguing, flirting, this was Tutton's dream. And he managed to make it his life. I remember Diane said to me once, That's Diane Keaton, the actress, whom he, quote, courted. She got very, she got very angry with me one moment. And she said, You know what, Tutton? You could spend your whole life in a cafe. And I said, Diane, you're right. That would be my dream, to live in a place where I can get up in the morning, have my breakfast in a cafe, read the newspaper, go back and write a little bit, and then come down for lunch and uh, hang out a little bit, go back and take a nap, then write a little bit and come in the evening for a cafe and a dr- coffee and a drink. My dream. <laughs> she didn't think it was funny. <laughs> so, but, but, but that goes to a point, though. So the life, the, the civilized life, is as important to you as, you know, producing 839 words today. I have friends who really work Novelist friends of mine get up in the morning, whatever they do, blah, 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 get to their computer and start working for two or three, three hours. They, public, they do enough work. By 11, 11 in the morning, their day is finished. I've never been like that. In fact, I'd rather live than write, although writing is, is living for me. But at the end of the run, seriously, at the end of the run, at the grave, they're going to say, you know what? He published 55 books and he only published five. It's not that. It's how you live the day. I know it sounds terribly 
old-fashioned or cliche, but it's how you live your every moment day with people you love and friends you love and things you want to do, see paintings. That's everything. I, I had a very old-fashioned idea of being an artist. <laughs> it sounds so strange, but that meant you produce the most beautiful work you can do. You don't repeat yourself. Try to be as fresh as you can, open to life as much as you can, and open to new ideas of writing as much as you can, or painting. And then live with the moment. We finally make it to Cafe Mogador, this Moroccan diner. Oh, here I am. Hi, I am. Oh, hi everybody. Everyone. Hello. It's big, friendly, charming, an East Village institution, like Fred Tutton. He comes in every day, sometimes more than once. Hi. The two of us settle into a corner booth, you have something to eat? I'm order something to warm I'll us up. A, uh, can I get a cappuccino? Thanks. Could I get the, uh, the two eggs poached, okay? And a, and a chamomile tea with a little hot milk? We begin by discussing his first novel, published in 1971, The Adventures of Mao and the Long March. It was a struggle to get there. He first sent the book to a well-known editor he knew at the elite publishing house Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, who rejected it over lunch. And he sits there, and he's actually almost trembling, and said, I hate your book. I hate it. He said, if I didn't know you, I would think this is an Andy Warhol put-on. And then he, and I was sort of taken aback, and he said, I've known you for a while. You're a warm person. There's no, no warmth in this book. It's a cold book. And it sort of the whole thing staggered me, and I was very hurt. But Tutton found a literary savior in the late great writer Susan Sontag, the American public intellectual of her time. Sontag and Tutton, about the same age, had met through mutual friends, artists, and bonded over a shared love of French New Wave movies. Sontag blurbed the novel when it was finally published with a Roy Lichtenstein lithograph of Mao on the cover. She called it violently hilarious. Suntag went to Roger Strauss personally and said, I beg you to take this book. I beg you to take this book. I found that from Roger, not from her. And he said, I, I would have considered it, Fred, but I, I can't go against my editor. My editor turned it down. I can't go over his head. And that was the end of that. But Suntag always would do things like that. She'd come and talk about, she'd plead for people's novels. and people. Who does that today? Who puts himself or herself out for other people that way? I mean, she did it all the time about poets, writers, painters, musicians, right. filmmakers. So that was the beginning of that novel. But uh, people, you know, people think, well, you know, they talk to me at a table, we have dinner. Yeah, and I'm certainly kind of one kind of person, but the fiction isn't cold. It just isn't autobiographical. Right. It's the most obvious sense it is. Right. Beyond not being autobiographical or realist in a conventional way, it's historical mostly. It's uh, characters who are so larger than life, like Van Gogh, or in the case of your novel about Tantan, actually right. fictional. Right. I mean, it, it's as though you're interested in writing the, the extravagantly fictional rather than something <laughs> that could pass for reality. <laughs> but you know, there are ways in which you, masks, you, you have masks, but you can tell the truth through a mask. That's what I was hoping to do. There's not so much in this book about writing and how you write, and right? I mean, it's, yeah. it's about life and, 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 and wanting to be a writer wanting more to than be. it is about writing. Yeah, right, right? right, exactly. Wanting to be a writer, dreaming of it. I was writing a lot, but nothing really coalesced until I was finished with graduate school. 
Then I did my first novel, The Adventures of Mao. It came out at the same time I got my doctorate, 1971. That was the beginning of it all. And, and you know, you weren't, you weren't yet middle-aged, but you were not a young prodigy at 35. I was 35. 35, I was 35 right? Did it feel late? No. And fortunately, it never seems late to me. That's the, that's, I never seem to think I'm old, for example. I never thought about writing or painting as a career in the way that people talk about it. I want to write beautiful books, noble books. I hate to put it that way, but they have dignity. and have some, some meaning to someone that just goes beyond just the surface of the reading. I tell my young students, look, if you want to make money, sell drugs. Don't get caught. That's a lot of quick money. Go, go sell drugs. If you want to write beautiful, interesting, fresh books, then you're in for a bad ride, perhaps. But the most important thing is you could do what you want. There is no formula. Forget about MFA stuff. Forget about the well-crafted. Forget about it. That's a myth. There's no formula. You can write anything you want, anything you want. It may not get published, but you can do it. This was advice that Tutton himself got when he was a student at the City University of New York, specifically City College, known as the proletarian Harvard. He had a professor named Leonard Ehrlich, who'd published a novel as a young man in the 1930s that made a big splash, but never published another book. And although Ehrlich faded into oblivion, he had a profound impact on Fred Tutton in the 1950s. And Ehrlich measured the student's stories in all writing by its music, freshness, conviction, insight, clarity, wisdom, and a word he frequently used, dignity. His most severe criticism of any author was that his or her work lacked dignity, meaning it was lazy, trite, or ordinary, that the prose was cowardly. My stories got B-minus at first, when I abandoned the Junior Hemingway pose, they rose to B+. After your first book, and it was, you know, well-received in 1971, you didn't write, you didn't publish another novel for a lot of years. 16 years. Did the l- ghost of Leonard Earl uh, <laughs> haunt you as you were as you were not publishing? Well, I'm laughing. I remember even saying to myself, "Did Earl curse me?" Because I was friends with him. I loved him very much. He was wonderful to me as a, as a sort of father figure. I remember Suntag saying to me once after three or four years, "People are wondering, are you ever going to have a second book, or is that it, Fred?" I said, "I think so." She said, "You said be careful. People haven't written you off yet, but if you wait long enough, they will." I'll never forget that. Was that a prod to finish? No. <laughs> no, because then I, uh, what was I doing? I was, uh, all those other years, I wrote a screenplay in the meanwhile with Zulowski of the cult film Possession. I, um, I was writing, I was writing art stuff, writing catalogs for artists. I was doing stuff, but it wasn't a book. Right. As this kid full of burning romantic ambition in the Bronx, you want to move to Manhattan? You do. You yeah. want to become a writer? You do. You want to become part of this glorious life of artists and writers and painters and musicians and cosmopolitan bohemia? You do. Uh, You wanted to have affairs with ravishing, brilliant women. You did. Are all the boxes checked off? (laughs) 
it makes me sound so good and happy. I, I wish it were true. If only I had gone to Leo Casale. <laughs> Leo Casale said, Leo, I'll pay you painting on slum. That's the only, that's the regret I have. So when I asked that earlier, that touched a nerve. Yeah, it really did. Because I think that's what I thought. Well, are you so stupid? You're in the center of it all. You're in the center of the whole metier. I knew everyone. Andy and I went, uh, Andy, uh, Warhol once said to me when I did this, uh, when Leroy did this beautiful lithograph of Mao, which was two years before Andy Warhol did it, before Andy Warhol made his Mao series, Lichtenstein already made a Mao head. And I remember Andy saying to me, say, Fred, you want to trade? And I said, sure, Andy. And you know, I'm so lazy. Said, yeah, I'll trade with you. I'll trade the lithograph, one of those special lithographs. I never got around to doing it. I just, for some reason, you know, it's very strange. When you're with people in a real life, you know, they're not celebrities, you're looking across at a table. That It's just life. So it never occurred to me, I better hurry up and get this thing with, with Warhol. He would give me a drawing. Drawing for a thing. I'll give you a drawing, Fred. I said, okay. I mean, those are the things I think. I said, where, where, what was I? I didn't have the, the clarity of thinking. I thought, Everything is okay, and it was seemed okay. And here you are, it's okay. And it's okay right now. Getting to do this with you was such a delight, because of course, you know, we've seen each other over the years, but but this gave me the pretext to ask all the impertinent questions. I've, you know, one, it would be too impolite to ask. I haven't heard one, life. I haven't heard one impertinent question oh, really? yet, not one. How much do you pay for your, for your rent control department? <laughs> Frederick Tutton's new memoir, A Young Life, is out now. Excerpts from the book were read for us by Alex Kramer. Coming up. And then the first day the strip came out, I remember hiding in the ladies' room of the office praying that nobody would read the newspaper that day, which of course they did. And, well, they tortured me. The real-life angst of the real-life Kathy behind the Kathy comic strip. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. It was announced that after 34 years in print, the comic strip Kathy would end its run. Here now to address the sadness is the star of that comic and the apple of my eye, Kathy. During her long run in the daily comic pages, the character Kathy was lampooned as an anxious, shopping-obsessed chocoholic. Here's Andy Samberg as Kathy on Saturday Night Live. Things are looking up, though. I'm on the lettuce diet. Oh, yeah? Yeah, let us eat what we want, Act! Starting in the 1970s, Kathy became a fixture in newspapers for decades. And for all its detractors, it really resonated with readers, particularly women, particularly back then, who found the character refreshingly relatable and real because Kathy was real. I actually begged them in the beginning to not name it Kathy, name it anything but Kathy. I didn't want people to think it was quite as realistic as it was. Kathy Geiswhite is the cartoonist behind Kathy. And they said people will relate to your strip more if they see that the character has the same name as you. It'll be like they're spying on your life. That was a big mistake. (laughs) 
when I was graduating from college and overweight and frustrated and miserable and tired of writing in my journal, I kind of summed up the disasters of my day in a little picture form, not meaning to create a comic strip, ever. Three bagels, two bowls of fudge ice cream, 17 Oreos, and a Twinkie. So what? He'll never call me again anyway. These were private, humiliating moments that I sent home with letters to my parents to let them know that I was coping. It was 1976. The world was changing dramatically for women. There were just beginning then to be so many wonderful, powerful role models for women. Women's rights is essential today for this To have a job, to have respect, to not be viewed as a piece of meat. A lot of women were kind of stuck, like I was, between two worlds, where we longed to be more independent, but we were still crumpled over things that shouldn't make us crumple. And a lot of the angst that I was putting down on paper was about me wrestling with the old way of being a woman versus the new way of being a woman. My mom felt that these very embarrassing personal moments should be shared by millions of women. She went to the library and researched comic strip syndicates. I finally, just to make mom stop telling me that it could be a comic strip, I sent some just scribbles to the name she had looked up at the library. And they sent me back a contract to do Kathy for pretty much the rest of my life. I did not know how to draw. I so didn't think of it as a career that I didn't tell anybody that I had the contract. I was working in an advertising agency at the time. And then the first day the strip came out, I remember hiding in the ladies' room of the office praying that nobody would read the newspaper that day, which, of course, they did. And, well, they tortured me, first of all, because I couldn't draw then and that my comic strip looked like nothing else in the newspaper. And it also sounded like nothing else because there was not a voice of any realistic woman on the comic pages in those days, not talking about the things I was. You know, should should a woman be allowed to have a job? If a woman got a job, you know, should she be allowed to wear pants to the office? Things that <laughs> don't exactly come up now as, as uh, controversial subjects, but they were then. It's no use, Andrea. I'm going to be fat for the rest of my life. Kathy, you do not have to be fat. Just use a little willpower. You can change. Just remember, you are the one in control. I know. That's why I'm going to be fat for the rest of my life. I got an immediate wonderful reaction from women, I'll say. Not so much much men, but from women who felt just enormous relief that somebody was kind of living out what they were going through, whether it was with the moms or the boyfriends or the, you know, the midnight fights with frozen chocolate in the freezer, vulnerabilities that were difficult for women to express or that they were kind of shamed for expressing, I could say in the paper, and women could tuck my strips away in their diaries or in their drawer or stick it on their you know bulletin board and go, oh, somebody else feels just like I do. That helps me. Even though at least half the people who were reading the newspapers were women, almost all the newspaper editors were men, all the salespeople were men, it was a tough sell to sell a strip that was so different and that was so female-focused, definitely. 
I remember asking Charles Schultz when I could be confident that all the newspapers wouldn't just cancel the next week, and he said 10 years of doing it every day. And it turned out that was just about right, that it was about 10 years in where I, where I felt some, <laughs> some job security. Why can't women wear baggy trunks and T-shirts to swim in like men do? Don't be ridiculous. Why not? It's a unisex world. Unisex jeans, unisex sweatsuits, even unisex cologne. Why not unisex swimwear? Why not let women be as comfortable at the pool as men for once in life? It just isn't done. Forget Dress Down Friday. What we need is Dress Down Saturday afternoon. It helped me have a good sense of humor when I was doing the comic strip because I always had somewhere to put the aggravation. You know, I could march out of the swimwear department dressing room weeping like all the other women, but knowing that I had two weeks of material from the frustration that I had just experienced in the dressing room. It's very, you know, it's ultimately very cathartic. It's me getting to express my frustration at, you know, the automatic faucets in the ladies' room that work for everybody else but don't work when I stick my hand under them. <laughs> what does that mean about my, you know, if the, if the faucet is not even recognizing me as a life force? That's what I love to write about, the little moments that add up on a woman's mind subconsciously so that at the end of the day, it can leave a woman feeling insecure, all alone. I'm, I'm not writing about those moments out of a grand obligation to help others. I'm writing about those moments because they're what happened to me. I'm sitting home with my cat, ordering the same thing almost every night. The only thing that can make it sadder is if I had a Kathy comic taped to my refrigerator door. Never say Kathy comic to me again. There's always been a certain percentage of people who hated my work, who did not like that it reinforced the negative stereotype of women as being, you know, obsessed with dieting, fashion, romance, angst. Women did not like that Kathy was vulnerable. They felt they were doubly incensed that finally a woman had a voice in a comic page, a woman had a public voice, and that I wasn't using it to express much more strong, triumphant, you know, more feminist ideals. And yet, I have always believed that, you know, you, <laughs> you know, just because you cave into a donut does not mean you're not a feminist. It just means you caved into a donut. I was clear that my job in doing this trip is to offer compassion and support for those moments when, when we're not doing great, when we're not feeling empowered and where the empowering moments rise up out of the, out of the rubble. But to be fully self-expressed about the rubble can be more inspiring, I think, than to not admit that the rubble exists, you know, that in a world of incredible, wonderful role models. My job is more to be there for somebody who feels all alone and like a failure, you know, at, at 9 p.m., not like the woman who has it all together. I'm getting wrinkles where mom has wrinkles, fat where mom has fat, quirks like mom's little quirks. The things mom says that drive me crazy are starting to pop out of my own mouth. Ack! I'm turning into my mother, Andrea! Kathy, your mom has some great qualities. I know, but... I only seem to have inherited the annoying ones. I think that ultimately humor saves you from feeling horrible about something. People laugh when, <laughs> when things get bad. So I have always found that as a writer, the worse I feel, the better the joke will be probably. So I need to usually be grateful 
grateful for the pain. Kathy Geisweit wrote Andrew Kathy from 1976 until 2010. Her new book of essays, 50 Things That Aren't My Fault, is out now. Kim Rosen and Marissa Martinelli voiced the Kathy comic strips for us, and our story was produced by Evan Chung and scored by Tommy Bazarian. We wanted to take this opportunity to note the loss and celebrate the career and general greatness of the remarkable filmmaker Agnes Varda. She just died at age 90. Her classic films, especially the magnificent Clio from 5 to 7, blazed the trail for the whole French New Wave movement. I talked to her in 2017 with her latest collaborator, the artist J.R., about their documentary Faces Places. Watching this young artist flirt with his 80-something auteur pal was a deep pleasure for me. Celle-là. C'est vu aussi. Après celui-là, le migrant. You want me to say how much I love Agnès as a mic test? Agnès, I love you. I've always loved you. Even in 1800, when I was not born and even conceived, I was already thinking of you. You are a clever man. Yeah, sometimes. Hello. You're so important. Listen to that. Is that baloney I can say? You can say baloney. That's allowed. We just re-released my whole conversation with Agnes and JR on our podcast feed. You can listen to that interview on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. Coming up. Quiet music or or soft music have that stigma of being like passive. But within that, it can be very powerful. And you're like, well, let's talk about this now. The deceptively chill music of Elado Negro. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. Cool. Roberto Carlos Lange has been making music for the past decade under the name Helado Negro. His music weaves together ambient electronic, Latin American rhythms, and this comfortable contemplative instrumentation. His new album, This Is How You Smile, features lyrics in both English and Spanish and riffs on Lange's memories of growing up as the child of immigrants. And right now, that nostalgia has turned a bit political, quietly defiant. When Roberto came to Studio 360 with his band, I asked him if he'd start us off, before we talked, with a song. Absolutely. What will this be? This is going to be a song called Running.
That's Elado Negro performing Running from his new album, This Is How You Smile. That was terrific. Thank you. The title of the new album, it, it comes from a line in a kind of famous short story by the great Jamaica Kincaid, a story called Girl. Um, talk about that story and, and how it uh, got to you and inspired you. It was a list of instructions. It was a mother telling a daughter, uh, Jamaica's from Antigua, and it felt like my mother, people of color, like immigrants, different generations, explaining like you're in this new place, you're in this place where you're not the person in control or in power, or you're actually maybe amongst a society that isn't necessarily understanding where you're coming from. It, it, well, it struck me that given that she came to this country uh, as an immigrant from Antigua when she was a teenager, your parents 
came from Ecuador as teenagers. They came to New York, yeah. You know, so, so there's some resonance there as well, right? Uh, I want to play a clip of Jamaica Kincaid reading uh, a bit from Girl. This is how you smile to someone you don't like too much. This is how you smile to someone you don't like at all. This is how you smile to someone you like completely. This is how you set a table for tea. This is how you set a table for dinner. This is how you set a table for dinner with an important guest. This is how you set a table for lunch. This is how you set a table for breakfast. This is how to behave in the presence of men who don't know you very well. And this way, they won't recognize immediately the <laughs> slut I have warned you against becoming. Ah, uh, that's the wonderful and lovely Jamaica Kincaid. Why did the particular line, this is how you smile, seem like the right line for an album out of context, just on its own? Uh, the smile is really powerful, and I think it's 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 been like um, put into this world of like, you smile, you're happy. But it's like, you smile and you're not happy. And you smile in moments where you're like, it's a slight towards someone, like someone puts you in a situation, you give them a smile and a smile can be very powerful in, in, in respect of being like, step away from me, yeah. you know? And I think that's where I was coming from, where it was like, I share my smile with the people that I love. That smile is very special. And then it's also in a powerful sense, like a defense mechanism, like, you know, the smile is not for you. Right. And step away. Um, can we hear another song? Yeah. Uh, what are you going to play? We're going to play Please Won't Please right now. Left out in ocean on top of blue tide and orange bone. Let go, let me be.
That was lovely. So you were born and raised in, in Miami, right? In South Florida, in Lauderhill, actually. Uh-huh. It's like a in, part of it's giant Fort Miami. Lauderdale. Yeah, Miami Dade. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, did, did you speak Spanish at home or not? Absolutely. Yeah. 100% all the time. And then outside English, both? Both, because everyone, you could call South Florida the capital of Latin America, Miami the capital of Latin America. We're like, what I always knew and saw was everyone spoke Spanish. It's it's not that it was all that I knew growing up, but I just thought that was normal. That was normal for me. Uh, in 2015, uh, you had a song that became a kind of anthem, right? People say that, anyway, uh, called Young, Latin, and Proud. What was the genesis of that? I wrote it in 2014, and it was a lullaby. I wrote it as like a time-traveling lullaby to kind of send to myself to give me that encouragement of being like, look, who you are is fine. Giving myself the sense of like pride in my individualism. But were you, the, the fact that people, especially young Latin proud people, took it as this a meaningful song, was that a surprise? Or it a- was. It was huge. It was huge because all the work that I do is for myself. And then as soon as you share it, you know that it's this public thing and it's for everyone else's interpretation. And I think the way people interpreted it or owned it, in a sense, it was really beautiful. It it opened up people to share stories with me about their own upbringing or where they were in the world, whether they they had been living here forever, second or third generation, or they they had just moved to the United States. And talking about the music and, and feeling the message as well. Your music, I mean, this whole album is intimate and personal and, as people have heard, very chill. But it does pop back and forth between melancholy and, and political. Yeah. Is that combination something that you were consciously doing? Absolutely. And I think, for me, the best way I've found to engage with folks, to talk to anyone or convey a message is through this intimacy like quiet music or, or soft music or things that have this kind of passive feeling have, have that stigma of being like passive. Like, oh, it's ambient. It's very gentle. Right, right. But within that, it can be very powerful. You're really catching someone's attention and you're like, well, let's talk about this now. And I think that's where I found myself to be the most effective mm-hmm. with the words and the work that I do. I'd love to hear one final song, if, if you don't mind. Yeah, definitely. And what is this last one going to be? We're going to play País Nublado. Even my bad high school Spanish, I know that the name of that song means cloudy country. Yeah. Obsesionado con mi boca Hablas sin Respirar despacio, te digo porque nos falta un tiempo más para pasear este país nublado, este país nublado. Para pasear este país nublado, 
That's Elado Negro playing País Nublado. Roberto was joined in studio by Nathaniel Morgan, Angela Morris, Opal Hoyt, Taja Cheek, and Jason Trammell. Elado Negro's new album is called This Is How You Smile, and it's out now, as is he, out on the road touring Europe and, starting in May, the United States. Our session was engineered by Irene Trudell at WNYC. And that's it for this week's show. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our sound engineer is... Sandra Lopez-Monsalve. Our producers are... Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is... Morgan Flannery. And I am Kurt Anderson. Who suffered rejection and loneliness and poverty to give his life to art. What a great, noble thing to give your life to art. Thanks very much for listening. PRI, Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360. Of the forms in which I write, theater is the closest to real life. Why Susan Marie Parks' outlandish, impossible new play about race in America is so believable. Real life is trippy. If you really look at it, there's some trippy stuff going on. Susan Marie Parks and Hamilton's David Diggs on White Noise next time on Studio 360.